What a great truth. Jesus paid it all. My sin had left a crimson stain, but he paid the price. He paid all of it for us. Turn with me, please, if you're not there already, to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5. would like us to open in prayer before we do and just to give a prayer request. Cassandra Jean Lore is having knee surgery and, and her husband asked if we would be able to pray for her. Let's bow in prayer. God, we thank you that we could come to you continually, that we don't need to wait for you to be in a good mood or to be alert, but that, God, you're ever vigilant, the ever-present sovereign one that could always hear our cries and Father, we pray on behalf of Cassandra and pray for the knee surgery to go well. And Father, we pray for others in our church that are recuperating and challenges of chemo coming up this week as we think of Violet. And Lord, thank you that our lives are in your hands. And Father, because of the truth of the song that we just sang, that Jesus paid it all. God, we want to live for you and be what we should be for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to put my message into a single idea of what I want to accomplish, it would be lay aside the sinful lifestyles of the old world, in parenthesis, because of who we are in Christ. When we look at our identity and how that should impact us. During World War II, the Battle of Normandy lasted from June 1944 to August of 1944 for two and a half months that that battle swept on. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces landed on the shores of Normandy, which is actually five beaches. You have the, the main one, Omaha, um, that my dad landed on. Then you have Juneau, and you have, um, um, I'm escaping the others. Uh, but there are Utah, and there are two other beaches, and it's over a 50-mile stretch of land on the Normandy coastline. And as they established that beachhead, they pushed forward and pushed onward. It was 156,000 Allied troops that landed. You had American, British, and Canadians um, that landed on those shores. And as that beachhead was established, they pushed on and at the, into August. Northwest France was liberated. And they had made their way to the Seine River. Paris was liberated. And it was pressing onward towards Germany. It was the beginning of the end. So eventually when Germany was signed at unconditional surrender May 8th of 1945. Um, but I think of that day when that beachhead was established. We didn't know there was going to be a victory. We believed it would be. And I think of that in our, our spiritual lives, if I may say. The day that we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, a beachhead was established. But the difference between that beachhead and the June 6, 44 beachhead is that we were guaranteed victory when we trusted in Christ as our Savior, whereas we weren't sure then. But we live between that D-Day experience, spiritually speaking, when we accept that Christ is our Savior, and the day that we will see him face to face, we live in between that period. Or if you please, the dash on the tombstone. And we find ourselves in continual skirmishes on life, in life, we, the enemy is hunkered down. He's resisting our every advance for the cause of Christ, is he not? And the challenges that he brings our way and, and the obstacles and the temptations that he tries to get us to fall. So how do we deal with the enemy? How can we be, be victorious in all that, that God has accomplished and given to us? And that's really what this message is about. It's a simple message and yet, may I say, a deep message because of his truth. That God has promised us victory. 
You know, sometimes people might say when you're going through a tough time, you know, or we might hear the counselors like Job's counselors, well, I wonder what you did wrong. You know, what, is there something wrong that you did? You know, if we're going through tough times, it may not because we did something wrong. Does it not say Christ in John 15, the world will hate you? Maybe it's because we did something right, what we really don't know. But we find the enemy resisting us, fighting us. How can we be victorious? In 1982, in the Falkland crisis between England and Argentina, England first, when they were battling Argentina, you know what the first thing that they did in this battle? They went to Port Stanley and they bombed up the landing strips. They just destroyed all the landing strips. So the Argentinian Air Force could not bring troops to the island. So the landing ships were bombed that they couldn't land. And in a sense, this passage we're looking at this morning is really bombing up the landing strips in our lives so the enemy can't land. It really is a simple message, and yet because of our identity and how it all works, it's so, so awesome. That God wants us in verses 5 to 8 to bomb up these landing strips so the enemy can't be influenced in our lives. Verse 5 is a group of verses that's talking about sexual sins. Verse 8, a group of verses that are talking about sins with your mouth. Paul just highlighting these two, but that we could bomb up these landing strips so the enemy won't be able to land. So I want us to look first in verse 5, the command to put sin to death. You know, some people may say, well, I can't be victorious over sin. It's just my DNA. You know, it's my family. My dad argued. My grandpa argued. My great-grandfather argued. I hear it goes all the way back to Adam, my family are. You know, it's just who I am. It's our family. Or we might say, I just can't help it. Sin comes telling my way, knocking on my door. I just, I just got it. I, I give in. I can't say no. Well, really, I would say boulder dash to all of that. Because God said we can be victorious. God would not give us a command if it's not possible, right? So he gives us a command, put to death. That's an imperative in the Greek. That's a command that he's commanding us. And we're going to hold off until we get to the heart of the passage in verse 9 in how we can obey these commands. But Paul really has given us snapshots in 2.13. Um, 113 and 14, 213 through 15, 223, 3. Who are we are in Christ, our identity? Dead in Christ, risen with Christ, died to sin. Keeps giving us that snapshot, but it'll come to an incredible head in verses 9 to 11 that I, I really would beg you to, to, to stay with me on focus here. So we come to verse 5, put to death, therefore. You've heard it said many times. What's the therefore? Therefore, I know it's not good English to end with a preposition, but nonetheless, we did. Um, What's the therefore, therefore? So he's really kicking back into the context based on what he's just talked about in verses 1 to 4 and in a greater reality, the whole book. This is who you Colossian believers are in Christ. You don't have to listen to the lies of all of these people that are talking about a lower Christ and how you could reach God in these different levels. This is your identity in Christ. He's driving that home. But he hits it here. Therefore, he's tying back into the the previous verses of what's connected that we're not to seek things on earth. And by the way, the things on earth, what is it, verse 2 or verse 3 that he talked about, in verse 5 he then enumerates those things on earth, the immorality and on and on. Now look look for a moment back in verse 3. 
Do you think there's any connection? For you have died. And then when he says in verse 5, put to death. What do you think? Do you think there's a connection to that? There, there absolutely is. He says in verse 3, you have died. If you care, um, that's in the indicative mood in the Greek. You might say, well, what are you trying to impress me with a couple of weeks of Greek that you had? Actually, I, I had more than that. But um, indicative mood is something that's certain, that's real. It's objective fact. It's not open for discussion. Um, let me give you an example. You know, isn't it terrible when you pick on the pastor and he's not here? So would his family please tell him this? The Detroit Lions never got to the Super Bowl. They haven't gotten close to the Super Bowl yet. That's not my opinion. That's objective fact. That's in the indicative mood. That's reality. So he's talking about reality here. That Notice I didn't say anything about the Cowboys. I have opinion, but that wouldn't be indicative. That might be just my opinion. But this is fact. I'm sorry, I couldn't. Welcome back, John. But here he's saying put to death. And I want us to understand something here. That you have died in this simple slide. You have died is the foundation. And then on top of that is put to death. The you have died is the indicative. It's the reality. We are dead to the penalty of sin. We have died in Christ. He's talking identity, identity, identity. Who are you, O Christian? So he's saying, in light of that, in verse 3, you have died. Now he's able to give this command. We have the ability to carry out the command of verse 5. We're able to do it. He says, now put to death. So based on who you are, we're to put to death. He gives us this, this command. This command to put to death is living out the victory that Christ has already won for us. The beachhead is established. We, we have that guarantee in Christ that we're going to be victorious. So he expects us to go out and live victoriously because of our identity, because of who we are in Christ. When he gives us this command to put to death, he's really saying that I, I, I need, to, I understand that I can be freed from the grip of sin in my life. I understand that I could be free from its power in my life because of who I am in Christ. You know, as a child of God realizes that fact, as we realize what God has done for us, God then expects us to positionally live out or practically live out our position. We're to live out differently. So he lists some of these sins now with, with this understanding. We have died. He gives us the command to put to death. Now he lists some of the sins. And I just want to hit some of them in verse 5. Verse 8 we're really not going to address. But he goes through some of the sins. And he says, here's how we're to do this dealing with sin. We're to deal with sex, sexual immorality. It's, it's that word that we're familiar with. Porneia is the Greek word. And from which pornography comes. Um, um, dirty pictures, but really becomes more than that. And he's writing, he says that to the Colossians that we're to just put porneia. It used to originally meant prostitute or, or to sell. But the New Testament broadens it a little bit and it has illicit sexual behavior, um, adultery, um, fornication, um, um, homosexuality, lesbianism. He lists all of these under this word porneia. 
that we're not to be involved in it. God is commanding us. We can't say, oh, you know, I'm just a man, or I can't help myself, or boy, it just is too much, or it comes down this road. No, we can say no. God wouldn't give us a command if we're not meant to live out our position. So again, in light of who we are, we're all to put off, and he lists all of these sins, and he lists sexual morality. Then he lists a broader term next, and he says we're also to put off um, impurity. Um, impurity is a broader term, uh, which include not just immorality, the act like, like um, porneia does, but it's also the, the thought process. Okay, I'm, I'm to be clean in my mind, and, and we get it. Mark 5, Matthew 5, when Christ is everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her is committed adultery whether already in his heart, or in Mark 7. Um, from within the heart of man proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, deeds of coveting. So evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. So God is giving a command based on who you are in Christ that you put to death. This, I mean, because you, you've died with him, now we're to, he gives this command, we're to put these things to death. We're, 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 we're able to. We're able to say no to, to these sins. We're able to turn things off before they, they influence us. We're able to take a different direction if a certain store has stuff. We're able to avoid things. God has given us that ability with the spirit within. We're able to put these things to death. But he goes on and he speaks of greed and, and, or, and passion and evil desire. Kind of really related um, similar sins. But I want to get to greed and covetousness. Um, which is idolatry. He lists it last of all of the sins because really greed and covetousness summarizes every sin that's committed, does it not? So he puts it last and he says that we believers, we are also to put to death this greed and, and covetousness. What is greed? What, what, is, what is covetousness? Which he then links it up with idolatry. Well, greed and covetousness is when I desire something, that I want something, I yearn for it so much, and I'll yearn for it more than I yearn for God, more than I want God. I, I desire this thing. And Paul lumps it and says, this is idolatry. When I put someone or something before God, when I refuse to bow to him and worship him as my supreme, and I want this thing, this is idolatry in my life. This is taking the place of God. And Paul is giving us commands. But, but wait till you see in verses 9 and how we're able to live it out. It's, it's, it's just it's pretty powerful. But he's giving us these commands in light of our identity, in light of what God has done, we're able to put these things to, to, to death. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan writer from a couple hundred years ago, wrote this. Our all sin is founded in secret atheism. I would be a Lord to myself and would not have a God superior to me. In sins of omission, we own not God in neglecting to perform what he wants. In sins of commission, we set up some lust in the place of God and pay to that the homage which is due to our maker. Every sin invades the rights of God and strips him of one or other of his perfections. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart. 
A mind in every sin aim, a man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. But God calls us not to be, be idolaters, not to be worshipers of self. If we truly have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we truly have, have put our faith and trust in Him as our Savior, then He expects us to live a, live a certain way. He expects us to have a certain way of conducting ourselves, and it's a command that He gives to us that we're not to be idolaters. Well, what is the remedy for, for covetousness? What is it? Contentment. Contentment in what God has done for us. Dave, love the songs that, that we sang this morning. And just for me to pause and slow down in, in the competition of having to get things with other people and to look and to realize what I have, then I won't be so driven for things because I have all that really matters in life if one has accepted Christ as their Savior. You know, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Tell me, what more is it that we can have? I mean, so our conduct is really, it's really gospel motivated. That God has saved me. God has brought me into his family. I belong to him. I want to be, I want to live for him. In light of Calvary paid it all. His sin paid for my sin. He rose again. He chose me. He allowed me to be a member of his family. I'm made alive spiritually. God, there's nothing more. God, may I be content in you alone. And this is what he's, what he's just is driving us, that we're, we're to put these things to death because of our identity. Let me t- briefly hit upon verses 6 and 7. Uh, reasons for putting sin to death. There's two listed that I, I don't want to spend much time in them. But the first one he lists, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Um, what is the wrath of God? Anger? Anger against what? Sin. So really, God's wrath is God's anger against sin. Um, Paul writes in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So God's anger is against sin, and really, I think, the, I think he's speaking here, if I may, to the unbeliever. So he's not saying to, to the child of God that you're going to come under the wrath of God you're going to experience the wrath of God. We may experience God's judgment on earth and be punished. But I think if, if I'm understanding the flow of the context, in light of the unbeliever is going to, for committing these sins, is going to experience the wrath of God, how much more should you, the child of God, not be engaged in these kind of sins? That stuff characterizes the unsaved. That stuff characterizes the world but it's not meant to be for the child of God. We're called to a higher standard. So we're not being legalistic when, we, when we're raising our sons and daughters. You're going to act a certain way. You're going to dress a certain way. You're going to have a certain conduct. We're not going to let you date boys when you're in fourth grade. You know, we're, we're going to call them to a standard because it's just godly and biblical and protecting. But he moves on and he gives us another one in verse 7. And these you two once walked when you were living in them. Here's a second reason for putting to death. Because those sins characterize the world. And secondly, he uses this, this temporal indicative that he used back in chapter 1 verse 21. The word once. And he says here in verse, verse 7. In these two, in these sins, sins you once walked. 
You see, we're not supposed to walk in them any longer. That means I have the ability to not walk in them. If you please, don't get too nervous with this statement. I have the ability not to, to not sin or to be victorious over sin. And I get it, we still do with the flesh. But God, God calls us in light of how our, how our position has changed. You used to do that, but we're not to do that any longer. You know, people wear different jerseys to identify, to identify who they are. You know, whether you have a Cowboys jersey or whether you're having Eagles or Sixers or Phillies or whatever you have, you're saying, I'm, or a Green Bay Packer, I'm a fan of this team. But, but really what we're looking at here is we're a fan of God. We're a follower of God. That's, that's our, our true ID. This other stuff that we wear, we're just messing and sometimes people take it too seriously. But this is really who I am. I am a Christian and God expects my ID to come forth in how I live. We look in verses 8 and 9. And again, just, just 8 and 9a briefly addressing it, commands us to put sins to death. In fact, we're not even going to really look at it, but it's sins of the mouth. And it's, all, it's based again on who you are. Let's look in verse 9 through 11 now. The reasons for putting sin to death. Why, why should I put sin to death? Um, how can I put sin to death? How can I deal with sin? I want you to see something that's pretty cool. In verse 9, 9b, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its new practices. Now, what did he just say to put off? What verses did he, verse did he mention that in? Was that not a command in verse 5? And then he lists things that were to put off in verses 5 and 8. And so verses 9b to 11 is, is a centerpiece, if you please. On the one side is the old self. On the other side is the new self. It's a bridge it's, it's the bridge to get to the other side. He just talked about putting off in verses 5 through 8. This is the old self. This has been put off. And now here's the truth that will help you to understand how we can do this. And then in verses 12 to 17, he's about to talk about the new self and what we're to put on. So this stands as the explanation between the put off in verses 5 to 8 and the put on to verses 12 and 17. Here's Paul explaining. Here's how we can do it. This is how we're able to do these things. This is what God has done for us. And it's an understanding of who we are. It's continually in the Christian life speaking identity to ourselves. Who are you in Christ? When we're tempted to respond a certain way to somebody or think something or desire something, it's continually flowing through our mind identity. Who I am in Christ. Who I am in Christ. What God has done for me, which then dictates everything. So look at this. He says, um, do not lie to one another then seeing you have put off the old self with, with his practices. The relation, if I may say, to the old self and the new self has been a lot disputed amongst Christians. Now aren't you thrilled to know that I'm going to put it to rest and answer the questions and I'm the final answer. Um, but I hope to let the word of God show. Um, and I know that's kind of presumptuous. <laughs> People, some people will say that a Christian, and how many of you have heard this view, has the old nature and new nature in them? How many of you have heard that? 
Only Sandy and I and a couple others. Uh, you know, I think most of us had heard, you know, that some people teach that. I'm not saying you believe that. Some cr- people teach that a Christian has the old nature and the new nature. But I want to show you, according to this passage, that, that that is not what God's Word says. That Paul is clearly stating something to the contrary. Look at what he says in verse, verse 9. Seeing that you have put off the old self, that is not a command. If your translation has it, put off the old self, that is a, a, a mistaken translation, if I may put it so, such. Um, it's a participle. It's not an imperative in the Greek. Um, and it's a participle that really can be translated having put off. And if you follow Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, new man, old man discussion, same thing happens there. It's never a command. It's a participle. So, so God is saying, having put off the old self, we're able to do this because the old self has been, been put off. We're able to do these commands because the new self has been put on. Um, 2 Corinthians, just to support that you're not two natures, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. It's not just talking about the old way of living. It's you're a new creation. That, that, that word katissus in the, in the Greek is actually a creative work that God does. He puts something new in us, and it's called the new man. If you please, a new soul. Old, what was there previously has, has been taken off and put away. To borrow the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, which is, is pretty dynamic, he says that we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be. Now, the body of sin isn't done away with. The body of sin might be destroyed. So he says that the old self has been crucified. Um, when something's crucified, what happens to it? It dies. Um, you're not going to find something crucified than hanging out and talking with people a little while thereafter. Something that's crucified is killed. It's dead. So when Paul writes in Romans 6 that our old self, our old man has been crucified and has been killed in order that, as a purpose, purpose clause, in order that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative. We're going to talk about body of sin a little bit down the road here. Um, but the old self has been killed and the new self. Lenski correctly puts it, the old man is not converted. He cannot be. He is not renewed. He cannot be. The old man, he can only be replaced by the new man. So salvation for us is not going to be addition plus add on the new man. Salvation is going to be transformation. That God's not adding and again, the dynamics and why I'm stressing this, if it seems so theological and deep, uh, uh, somehow it's beyond my mind, I'm sure. But um, it's because we need to understand who we are and what God has done. And that's the key to victorious living. The title of the message, How to Deal with Sin. Uh, my big idea, lay aside every sin of the old world because of who we are in Christ. It's to understand who we are. So, so he says the old self has been put off. Let's answer the question. What is the old self? Uh, we've been, been skirting that, that answer. What is the old self? The old self is the unconverted self, uh, unconverted self, a personification of our whole sinful, dead, alienated um, from God person. It is 
pre-fall, it is fallen Adam, our connection to Adam's fallen sin in Romans 5. So it is our dead, alienated from God, sinful self. That deadness, um, Ephesians 2.1, Ephesians 2.5, we were spiritually dead, but we're made alive. So that deadness has been taken away. We're made alive in Christ. It's a transformation of the new creation. Well, then what is, you know, when we, we, we see the connection to the old man has been put off, when he says in verse 3, you have died because the old man has been put off, and now we're able to live out this sin. Well, then, then what is the new man? when he says the, the new person here, and he says that in verse 11 and 10, and have put on the new self. What is the new self? It's the regenerate, regenerate self. It's the redeemed self. It's the renewed man in Christ. It's our, our, our um, progressive, or, or our ability to live for God. So it's our, our, our saved, redeemed, um, in Christ relationship that we have that we're made spiritually alive. It's a new creature in Christ. So the old has been put off and the new has been put on. And then we see that God does one more thing in verse 10. He says this renewal process of, of how it happens, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is in, in if you please, the present participle. It's, it's a process in the present tense still happening. It's going on. We're being renewed. We're, we died. The old self is dead. The new self has been, been put on. And God is renewing continually in our lives. So you might answer then or ask, then how, do you, how, do, how can we still sin? You know, sin is a reality that we all know. And probably, unfortunately, we dealt with it this morning already. Um, so, so what is the reason if you're saying the old man has been killed and that's that connection in, in Adam or um, in fallen Adam has been laid aside that deadness and we have the new man, well then how is it that we're still sinning? Before I answer that, please, when I first was wrestling with this years ago, I raised my hand and said to the, to, to the professor who was talking about this, I said really you're just talking about semantics then because you're saying the old self is, is dead but the body of sin is, is alive. And, and he, he, he began to, to unpack it so I can understand it. It's not semantics. It's in a very deep, real reality. My old self is, is dead. That ability where I couldn't please God. I, I wasn't capable of doing that. Now he has put the new self in me. And I have to wrestle with the body of sin. It's the flesh. It's human desires carnal desires, temptations to, to stumble. But it doesn't identify who I am in my essence. In my essence, I am holy. First Peter 1, I'm not dead spiritually, but I still wrestle with the flesh. So in my deep-rooted self, I'm, by God's grace, I'm holy, and I'm to live out that position, but we still wrestle with, with the flesh. And it's the old, it's the, it's the battle um, Paul wrote in Romans 6, remember, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative. The body of sin isn't killed. The body of sin is still rendered. He said the old man has been crucified that the body of sin might be. So that's the battle that we're going on. The beachhead has been established, but I fight every day the enemy. And I can't always say the enemy is without. Sometimes the enemy is within. It's, it's my flesh. But God has given me the ability of who I am in my inner nature 
not to, but I'm defining my nature, the new man, I'm holy in Christ, that I can say no to these sexual immoralities. I can say no to slander. I can say no to, no to all of the, the, to the lies in verses 5 to 8. You see, we battle sin from the perspective of victory. I hope we're, uh, uh, we're, we're getting it here that we don't have to stumble. If we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we don't have to do this. And oh, I just can't help myself. Man, we need to pull up the bootstraps and say, I'm not going to give in to the body or the flesh because I've been made holy and positionally before Christ. I'm going to live out that position. And it might look like this. Let's go through some of the sins as we looked at sexual sins in verse 5. You know, when we're home alone, and the computer and everybody's asleep and we're looking at whatever on the news or sports or something and an ad comes up. We don't have to go to that ad that would take us deeper down the wrong road. We're able to say no because of who we are. We're not like a lamb led to the slaughter. We're able to say no to such sins because we have been made a new creature in Christ, the new man, and we're able to obey the commands put to death or covetousness whether you covet a person or you covet, covet a thing. We don't have to covet that, that car and get a second and third job because we want to get that dream home or that motor home and because that's all that defines us, that consumes us because that's an end in itself. We're able to not to be covetous because of who we are in Christ or when we, we're tempted to be angry over something. We're, we're able to say no to anger. Because we're a new creature in Christ. We don't have to give in to the lies of the lip and let our lip run wild. We're able to say, God, I need to remember what you've done. I need to submit to your lordship in my life and your control in my life that I'm able to have victory over these carnal desires. God, I want to submit to you more and obey you more. That's amazing grace that allows us to do that and slander and so forth. But look how this verse ends. And we're going to talk about it more in small groups tonight. Um, but in light of all that's been, been happening, pretty powerful implications of the risen life here as we talk about in the 21st century America and all that's been going on. And he says in verse, verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, um, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. You know, just as individuals have, have believers that we have put off the sinful lifestyles of the old self. The church is to do the same thing. We're, to not, we're not to know any more barriers. We as Christians and how we treat people, and this is the big challenge in America and all that's, that's going on and, and with race and, 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 and tension. Here God gives us the, 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 the pattern, the blueprint of how we are to live. And he says there's no racial there's no religious, there's no cultural, there's no social barriers that are to separate people, that we're all one and one, and there's to be a sweetness and a oneness as we come together. You know, and, okay, I get it, things, I'm sorry for the past and, you know, in our American history, but we don't live in the present and love one another, and that's God's pattern, that's what God's calling us to do. And may there not be divisions, may there not be strife, may there be a unity and a oneness as we come and we want to just love and serve one another. But that's the pattern, that's the blueprint of the result of the old man being done away with and the new man. So even on both sides there has to be graciousness. You know what, I forgive for the past, we're going to put our hands together. We just want to make a difference for God. We want to advance God's kingdom together. Uh, we want to move forward and be what God wants us to be. You know, we're, we're not going to see 
racial standing or, or economic standing. We just want to love one another and joy and be together. You know, there are many strict and, may I say, even ridiculous rules that the royal family had to follow um, or that still that follow because you're a royal. Their identity impacts their conduct, their behavior. Um, because they're royal, they have to live and conduct themselves a certain way. Prince Philip, um, who passed away Friday at the age of 99, um, he was required to walk in tow behind um, his wife, the queen, the majesty, and he did for a boatload of years. He would always walk behind her. That's royal protocol. Um, the royals are to accept all gifts graciously, even if it's a Dallas Cowboy jersey. They're to accept them graciously like they really liked it. Um, there, there's a strict dress code. Um, they're to dress modestly, um, not or no, nor are they to, to dress overtly casual. You're not going to see them in, in shorts and a tank top. Um, there's no politics allowed. They're not allowed to give their opinion. In fact, they're not even allowed to vote. They can't state th their opinion publicly. Another rule is that um, there's no PDA um, even amongst husband and wife in the royal family. You're not going to see them holding hands, at least they're not allowed to. And you'll see pictures of them standing here with their, their, their hands folded. Um, here's a real bummer to me that when the queen is done eating, everybody has to stop eating. So you better be keeping an eye on the queen's plate and chow down before she gets done. <laughs> or, or another one, when the queen, some, some of you might like this, um, you ladies, when the queen is done talking, she'll move her purse from the left to the right and conversation now is done. <laughs> um, these are just rules, some of the rules of the royals. Um, but you know, our identity in Christ, who we are, is to give us guidelines in how we are to live. May we not forget that, that I, that we that have accepted Christ, we are a new creature in Christ. We're a new self. We have died with him. And now we have a responsibility to put to death. The old man was put off. The new man was put on. Salvation is not just addition. Salvation is transformation, that we allow God to transform our lives. Yeah, the enemy's hunkered down, but by God's grace, that day when we accepted Christ as our Savior, that was D-Day for us. Victory was promised. And Paul speaks of being that victorious position continually in, in Romans chapter 8. There's now no condemnation. So we're victors. So we deal from this intel that we could have on the battlefield that we are going to be victorious. And now I can um, fight from a battle of strength because I'm superior, or who is in me, greater he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm battling from a, from a, from a position of strength. May that change how we live and how we conduct. May we keep falling in love with the amazing grace that God has bestowed upon us. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and your love to us. God, may we live in the shadow of the cross. May we be gospel-centered, gospel-motivated, gospel-driven to think that the new man has replaced the old man and the new man that can be victorious, that can beat up the body of sin, that can render the body of sin inoperative because of what you've done for us. We love you and may we live for you this day, I pray in Christ's name, amen.